got this down so what's new pussycat since i saw you two days ago <laughs> um not much is new you know the same old i guess you know hold up in in the house in quarantine living our lives watching a lot of tv shows uh what are we watching now are you current did you finish new york the new york final episode Ye- yes we did yes we did i cannot believe dorinda's behavior I'm shocked at her. Like, she's been pretty wild all season. Like, yes. she's definitely been on a tear. But it's it's mostly been an enjoyable to watch up until, like, the last few episodes. But this one, is she's just, like, out of control. Yeah, it's bizarre. Like, it's a really, really strong reaction just to hearing somebody's name. Yeah, and what a strong reaction to Tinsley. Like, how many how many months after you... you I forgot she was even on this season. I know. I mean, I think everyone it made, did. It made no sense to And me. like all the breaching your contract stuff, I was like, wow, she's really just getting very, um, breaking breaking that wall for They really nothing. broke the fourth wall a lot this, this with the recent, you know, um, in Beverly Hills. I feel like they've shown a lot of the producers and yeah. stuff lately. Yeah. The only time yeah. I ever show producers is when they need to show like a behind the scenes or like like sort of fight that gets that happens and right like in atlanta there was that one season where katie just left was it katie that when was they potomac. were on like vacation potomac when katie just left yeah wait katie was on potomac yes that's the oh, season yeah, yeah yeah you're thinking okay. of the same people just the wrong you just said the wrong city but yeah so we're just you know watching housewives and oh we just finished uh drag race season seven so davy now uh he, had, he just had, like, a very specific idea of what he thought was going to happen this season. So I've been really enjoying watching the old seasons with him of Drag Race because he has some spoilers in his mind, but he yeah. doesn't have context for them. So no. spoiler alert right now, he will not, he will not get to this episode before we, we get to the, the later seasons. But spoiler alert for anyone who watches Drag Race out there and is watching old and seasons. And it's, like, five seasons behind. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. But he just had this, he knows that at some point Trixie wins the season. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he knows that people are... And so he thought it was season seven. Yes, and he knows that people feel controversial about it. He doesn't know why. And so he, um, especially when in this season, when Trixie went home and came back as like the, the queen that went home too early in season seven, remember? Yes. So when he she came back, he's like, oh, now I finally get it. She comes back this oh, season, yeah. she wins, and people <laughs> don't think it's fair because she came back this season. And I'm like, I, you know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. That's been my biggest enjoyment these days is rewatching old seasons of uh, TV shows. Listen, you got to find the joy where it is these days. Yes. Oh, do you know what I just started to watch? Um, what? More, more current, um, Little Fires Everywhere. Oh, that's the one with Kerry Washington and yes. Reese Witherspoon. Yes, I just started. We're on season. I think we're on episode four or five already. I really liked it, but I felt like they took too long to get into the backstory of Kerry Washington's. Oh, wait, you haven't finished. I don't know. I'm not upset about it, but I I see what you're saying because we're in episode five now, and I feel like so oh, okay, okay. so so much has happened, and yes. we're just getting the the merest pieces the merest pieces of now of what her backstory is like 
or yeah, that was my biggest complaint. Slivers, but I, as long as like we eventually get it all, I'm, I'm happy. It it was just one of those things where, as a viewer, you really didn't understand her reactions to a lot of things. Yeah. And, yes. And so it was very like I I'm I'm unclear why you're having such a strong feeling about this, and it took a really long time for us to get to her backstory, uh-huh. and so it all made sense, and it was all. It was, again, one of those things like Game of Thrones, where it was like, okay, that's fine. I'm cool with this storyline, but I need you to do a little bit more of the setup for it so that it makes sense. And I, I, can, I know, you know, part of it is like you re- the backstory is being revealed, but I feel like it just could have been fed in a little bit earlier, like yeah. teasers of it a little earlier like, so that it, yeah, it made more sense. I totally agree with you. And I'm like sort of on the fence, like between like, oh, I see the, the there's a tension building and we're supposed to right. be sort of like, we obviously understand why her character Mia is like so um, put off by Reese Witherspoon's character. <laughs> yes. But you yes. get, you also get like a really interesting side of, um, of like white people in the nineties who aren't actively Very racist, much. but who are, who are racist, but who are who are trying to be actively non-racist in the way that they think is effective. Well, do you know what I mean? It's very much it's l- really like, I think it's very much a product of like, it's a product of the times of like in people who thought they were like progressive mm-hmm. in that period of time. were still in like the colorblind racism place where it's like, I don't see color. I see people. Yes. Especially and in that kind of community. Exactly. And so, you know, really what that, does is allow people to ignore all the ways that they, you know, oppress and uphold white, um, white supremacy and all that kind of stuff. And so it, it's obviously not a, not a good strategy to be colorblind, but, um, I think Reese like thought she was doing like her character, I think we're meant to believe like thought she was doing good things and, um, all of that kind of stuff. So it's a good show. I liked the show. I just, I was confused for the first few episodes why Carrie Washington's character was reacting to certain things. We're the way still, she did. we're still confused by some of it too. So okay, we're, and we're it'll, it definitely. Five, so, but we're by we're the end, it all makes like sense. Little pieces, and I have some theories and stuff. But I really like that, like okay. sort of like tension building and us not knowing. But like, we got to get, we got to get there, you know. So speaking of speaking of shows and getting there, yeah. Welcome to Cool Story. Oh, welcome to Cool Story. I was like, oh, what are you watching? <laughs> oh gosh what i just finished um euphoria on on uh, hbo did you watch it we haven't finished it yet yeah we're like halfway through that first season well let me just tell you nothing gets resolved and (sighs) so i literally watched the last episode and was like oh wait that was the last one like it it legitimately Mm. didn't even really leave you with cliffhangers or anything tied up it was just like it it almost feels like a mid-season break kind of thing oh i hate that does, it, yeah, does it stay intense and, and as good as it is early on? You know, I really liked it early on. And then something about the last, like, two episodes felt uh, like... I, Was it, like, disjointed? It felt like they, it, kind of. It sort of felt like the, the earlier episodes, it was, like, sort of kind of like sex education where they like focused on a character as a way to talk about all the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or kind of like Orange is the New Black, how they center on one person's narrative. Each or like week kind of Dear, thing. Dear White People. I haven't seen that. I know I need to. Oh, I'm actually um, watching it. Cur- I'm, I'm super behind. I'm in season two right now, but they do that. They center around okay. one character each episode, like primarily, but you're, you're getting, you know, everyone, you're getting bits of everybody that you'll learn yeah. more about when you have an episode that's more about them, you know? 
so Euphoria is kind of like that. And then in the last two episodes, it just kind of became like jumping around to different things in a, I don't know, I felt unresolved. Okay. And maybe I'm supposed to feel unresolved. Um, and I'm fine with that. It, it was just a little bit like, what? <laughs> and maybe that's what they wanted. I don't know. I'm interested. Anyway, welcome to Cool Story. Welcome to Cool Story. Here we are. What are we doing? Here we are. <laughs> we are the um, coolest podcasters on the planet. You're welcome. And we are uh, recapping Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time. And we're on book two, The Great Hunt for the Horn. I guess the book is just called The Great Hunt. Yes. Um, yes. And we last left off. Um, on chapter 20, where Rand and Loyal and Huron and Celine make it to a little village. I wonder if they'll market t-shirts like that. You know those shirts that are that style? That's like a t-shirt, like a plain color t-shirt, and then it just has text on it going down the whole front of it. Let's say oh. if it was themed about oh. Golden Girls, it would say like Rose Ruth and, and Dor- Blanche yes, and... People- and yes, people just... already have the uh, Emmonsfield Five characters. Okay, I was gonna say because yeah. as you as you listed the characters, I was imagining that shirt because <laughs> you did it in that style. You're like Rand, yes. and, and, and I was like, oh, and, that would be and. such a great idea for our yeah, podcast. Somebody already did it. Damn it! Yep. <laughs> Damn it! <sighs> well, one day, really behind one, in that. Uh, one day we'll have merch. Yeah, keep keep calm and, and uh, wait for our merch. If you would buy our merch, just send us a little email so that we know. And what would you buy? Yeah, and then we'll hound you when we open up our shop and nothing's selling. We'll be like, you said. You said. We have it in writing. Buy our original artwork piece that is valued at $3,000. Yeah, yeah, actually, we're not going to do the usual merch store of like t-shirts and a hat. We're going to do um, couture uh designs and and one of a kind artwork one of a kind um (laughs) you know what's funny is ironically like we are both artistic and so we could actually do things like that but i know we shan't we shan't because i don't have the time (laughs) okay but what we do have time for are these chapters are these chapters so chapter 21 is called the nine rings um, not to be confused with Ariana Grande's song. <laughs> was like that a that. cough or like an explosive laugh? <laughs> it was a cough, and oh, okay. then I started laughing. You can edit okay. that part out. Oh, we'll see. I might, I might just keep it in and pretend it was a laugh and like okay. nothing else. Um, the little icon for this is a harp, which got me really excited because previously the harp chapters were about Tom. And while I'm not, you know, I've always been very suspicious of Tom, I would be very excited to see him back in the fold and into the the throes of things. So, yes, yes, I am very excited. And I know we're eventually going to see him again in this story. I just know it. But let's see. Let's see. Anyway, so Rand and the crew are entering the inn. And they take note of the sort of occupants of the room. And there are about half a dozen men. They're soldiers, he's assuming, by their, like, uniforms. But they're not in, like, the traditional sort of armor he's been seeing or that we've been seeing throughout the book either. And so they have more of, like, a police or, like, military-style uniform in the description. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's like they, um, in place of armor, they're wearing... Like dark blue clothes, um, high boots turned down at the top, and with red and yellow stripes across the front of the chest. 
and they're sounds very busy. It sounds very. I thought it sounded actually very simple. Like it's like a plain navy like outfit, almost like police blues or something. You know, like dark okay. blue color, really plain. No, none of the flashy stuff. And then like the, these black boots turned down at the top, very like military. And then the only splash of color is this like little. I'm picturing really thin red and yellow stripes though. Okay, like a pinstripe. Almost like yeah, like a uh, a yellow stripe, a red, and then a yellow, and that's it in one band across the chest. Okay, you know, like very military is what I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, which is kind of cool, like a different sort of vibe than we've been seeing. And, yeah, I feel uh, like we've seen like like guards and stuff, but we haven't necessarily seen like military much, other than maybe well, I guess in Shinar yeah. and uh, Camelin, maybe when Rand was in the palace. Yeah, I like seeing different styles of like dress and different styles of armory and magic uh, or the thoughts on magic and like these different areas because it just shows how um, it just like builds out this world to not just be one note, you know? Yes, I um, keep talking. I'm going to try to find the picture of the a leaked image of the white cloak armor. Ooh, okay, um, cool. Showed up online and let me send it to you. Oh, Okay, I, that's actually pretty kind of close to what I would imagine. I kind um, of love it. I love that it's not typical. Yeah. And I really like the sort of segmented armor yeah. on the arms. If there's more of that, a little more of that wouldn't hurt. A little more I think, of the armor on the arm. Um, yeah, I think this is probably like a um, I'm not active in battle yeah. sort of thing. This is like patrolling um, the streets kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I think, yeah. Oh, I like this. This is cool. I really like it, too. I think it's cool. It, it looks really unlike what you would typically expect, like, sort of fantasy armor to look like. A lot of people thought it looked too costumey, but I really... I, I kind of think the white cloaks are sort of super full of themselves. Oh, and, yeah. Very, like, and top and circumstancy. Yeah, and they talk a very big game, but they are kind of useless little shits. And so I think that it's kind of perfect for their... For how self-important and how... Like, if you're truly a warrior, white fabric makes the least sense possible. And so, like, these people clearly aren't really that great or amazing. They're just kind of, like, dickwads. Right. And they probably <laughs> think themselves pretty amazing to be, like, walking around in white armor and be like, look how spotless we are still. But exactly. But it's because they really aren't doing anything. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's very broy, like hey man let's get some sick armor like <laughs> you know what i mean imagine yes. like what tom sandoval and uh tom schwartz would oh wear if they were yes. doing like a uh an episode where they were trying to be knights yes that's absolutely true oh man okay yeah that's cool i'll have to so put, anyway, I'll put that on the instagram this week when you were talking about armor i was like oh i have to show that to matt yeah thank you this is uh, <laughs> all of this talk about the white cloak armor. These are not white cloaks. <laughs> no, <laughs> these are just the. Uh, well, we'll find out who they are. But they're they're soldiers, and the only only other thing I wrote down about them was interesting is their heads are shaved in the front and long in the back. That's a look. You know, I always kind of ignored that description because I found it kind of very difficult to imagine yeah. in any way that looked not very strange. Um, but. It supposedly references uh, like a specific style of haircut in in history, and I'm trying to remember which one. Okay, uh, I'll I'll keep looking for it. But uh, if you're a listener and you remember, feel free to tweet us or email us about what 
what the hairstyle inspiration is for the carrion yeah. f- uh, front of the head shaved thing. Yeah, I'm curious. Interesting. So this is the sort of crew he's got in this inn, and the innkeeper is this lean older woman named Maglin Madwin, which is probably one of my favorite mad 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 madam mim exactly that's what i wrote i was like she is plucked right out of the sword in the stone or any old fantasy cartoon <laughs> as like this like suspicious keen older unassuming lady like that the main crew comes along that has this crazy name you know like <laughs> yes based on the group's clothing she treats them as nobility and has a great respect for Loyal, as most people seem to for Ogiers everywhere they go. And she wonders where they're all from. And Rand says he's from Andor, um, Celine from Carrion, and Loyal says he's from the Borderlands. Now, she notices the heron-marked blade, and she loses a little bit of respect for them, it seems. Because, you know, th- she's wondering, like, who are you really? And why would you have that if you're just from Andor? Mm-hmm. Um, she guesses they're on the way for the um on their way to the great hunt for the horn, and Rand practically has like this over the top anime style embarrassed boy reaction, like yes, <laughs> the face. What are you talking gets, about? Like, we super red. <laughs> yeah, exactly. His eyes just become these like lines. He's like, uh, what? I don't even know what a hunt is. I've never hunted in my life. <laughs> I don't even like Helen Hunt. <laughs> What's a horn? He's freaking out, but Huron notes that from the way she's speaking, she's not carrying in herself, which sort of catches her off guard because the way he appears in comparison to the party, he looks like a servant. And why is he speaking out of turn at her? She explains, however, that she's from Lugard, but was married to a carrying in for many years. And when he died, he left her the inn. Anyway, she invites them to sit, and when she sees all four seated together, she walks away feeling even more suspect about this crew because, you know, maybe the Okier, but why is the servant sitting with nobility, quote unquote? Mm-hmm. So right. the group is served a meal prepared in a way that Rand has never seen, and so I wanted to just describe it <laughs> as it is in the book. It's been a okay. long time since we've had an interesting meal. It has been. We really haven't had a lot of good meals to talk about. snacky, snacky stuff. And it's like, let's get a meal. So here we go. So at first, Rand stared at his food doubtfully. The pork was cut in small bits mixed with long strips of yellow peppers and peas and a number of vegetables and things he did not recognize, all in some sort of clear, thick sauce. It smelled sweet and sharp, but both at the same time. And then he goes on to say, or RJ writes... Rand took a hesitant mouthful and almost gasped. (laughs) It tasted just as it smelled, sweet and sharp together, the pork crisp on the outside and tender inside, a dozen different flavors, spices, all blending and contrasting. It tasted like nothing he had ever put in his mouth before. It tasted wonderful. He cleaned his plate. It's sweet and sour pork, right? I was. I wrote down, this sounds to me like some sort of Asian cuisine, and then I was going to ask you how you felt about it. I think it's like sweet and sour pork. That's how it sounds to me because it's crisp on the outside, like chewy on the inside. It's like this blend of all these like, yeah, sweet and sour pork, right? Yeah. Oh, I love it. Ah, And I'm so happy that he's experiencing this because I absolutely love sweet and sour chicken, sweet and sour pork. Mm. Mm-hmm. Bon appetit. So <laughs> if there's no fortune cookie at the end of this story, I'm out of here. So... Rand is loving it, obviously, cleans his plate. Loyal likes it, too, and he asks for more. 
and Madwin notices that there's a flute sticking out of their bags, and he asks if Huron wouldn't mind playing. But Rand surprises her again, and Celine, it seems, by saying he's the one who plays the flute. She apologizes, um, but Rand is like, no, 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 it's okay, I'll play. I'll play for everybody, I don't mind. It's been a while since he's had Tom's flute in his mouth, and he's eager to get his hands Goodbye. on it again. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> So, anywho, he's, yeah, he actually is very, like, nostalgic about Tom these days, and he he is actually excited to play and kind of go back to the days when, maybe not when he was in Emmons Field, but when things were at least a little simpler. So, yeah. he plays for the room, and the soldiers are singing, and they're delighted about his performance, and when it comes to an end, their captain abruptly snaps them sort of like back into the stoic reality. They all, all the laughter ceases instantly and they leave and the captain holds behind and approaches Rand, introducing himself as Aldrin Caldwin, Caldwin. And he is captain in his majesty's service. He sits with them and Rand asks if he has seen his friends, but he has not. And the man speaks sort of like Moraine in Cadence is what Rand notices. And mm -hmm. he starts to sort of like quiz them. It's like definitely more of an inquisition disguised as conversation. Mm -hmm. So he's like asking them to be reminded of the leader of the Queen's Guard's name, who he obviously knows. And then he tests them again by misrepresenting said person's age, even though they kind of passed that test too. And he asks their names, and Rand gives his Celine. He looks at in almost like a trance, like everyone else does. Right. But then he asks for hers, and as she goes to speak, a servant girl breaks a lamp in the room and gets chastised in the background by Madwin. And after this interruption, Celine goes to her room suddenly, and it confirms for me that she is definitely an Aes Sedai, because... I'm still trying to figure out how she got away with what we found out in last week's episode in the chapter where she sort of said she wasn't an Aes Sedai, but not exactly. But here it's very like deliberate, I feel like. So I believe that she made that girl get a twinge in her arm so that she could cause a distraction, which would cause her to not have to tell the truth about her name, which is not Celine. Well, I'll go on to say how else I think she is an Aes Sedai. So... Anyway, now Rand asks about the statue that's outside, and he says it's said to be from the Age of Legends, which sounds to me like a new mobile phone game. <laughs> um, the, the king has ordered that when it's excavated, it be brought outside the capital as a monument to Carrion. Mm. And... Rand knows the Age of Legends is when channeling was more common and was seen sort of everywhere, and he yeah. wonders if that's what he was experiencing at the dig site. And I think, um, uh, duh, duh, yeah. duh, Rand. No, it was it was just a fever dream, right? To where you like seized to the source and couldn't let go. So Aldrin says that they're headed to Carrion, and he can have his men accompany them. Um, he does this in a way in which RJ wrote as, quote, a question, but as if acceptance was a foregone conclusion, an end quote, which I loved because I feel like people do that all the time in everyday life these days. Yeah. And I hate when people do that kind of thing and you're just like forced into a situation out of like the guise of a question like, oh, yeah, you, you, you'll do that, right? Ugh, I hate that. 
So anyway, the mistress comes over and gives Rand some relationship advice for Celine <laughs> and tells him like, you know, just go say you're wrong even if you're if even if you're not. She she went up to a room upset, like that's the best way to <laughs> I love Madame Mim here. Yeah. So, um not not really bad advice either. Not the best, not the worst. So when she shows them the rooms, Rand is like, oh, you know what? We don't need three rooms separate. I want a room for all three of us together, despite Celine being on her own. And then in the room, Loyal shoves the chest under the bed. Um, they settle in, and Rand asks why Aldrin was so suspicious of them, because he, mm-hmm. he obviously caught on, which I didn't think he was going to somehow, but he caught on to the, like the Inquisition. And... Um, Loyal sort of explains that it's about the game of houses, and he must have thought that Rand was playing and somehow trying to get an advantage. And he explains of the game of houses. He says, it isn't a game at all, Rand. I don't know much about it. Oguer don't do such things, but I have heard of it. The nobles and the noble houses maneuver for advantage. They do things they think will help them or hurt an enemy or both. Usually it's all done in secrecy. Or if not, they try to make it seem as if they're doing something other than what they are. Even knowing what it is, I don't understand it. Elder Haman always said it would take a greater mind than his to understand the things mans do. And I don't know many uh, as intelligent as Elder Haman. You humans are odd. So (laughs) (laughs) it's like you said, um, as you described Carrion, like it's a very political city and much of the, I guess it's... Carrion is reminding me like of the best parts of Game of Thrones, you know, mm-hmm. like yes, the yeah. more political things moving in the background and hit small council type stuff and Littlefinger, you know, that the, the my favorite mm-hmm. parts of those types of shows. Yeah. Um, Rand worries that the flute playing that he did might have been a bad choice then and might have like signaled something more to them or made them more suspicious of him. But they really don't know. And they decide they'll just ask Celine in the morning because she might have a better idea of being from Carrion. Mm-hmm. When they awaken, though, Celine is gone. Yep. She left in the evening, it seems, and she left a note with Madwin, who assumes that she was right about her advice <laughs> to Rand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, he should have went and told him. Instead, he's shacking up with an animal and a servant. No wonder she left. And so the note has a white wax seal on it with a crescent moon and stars, which I thought, number one, how adorable, how cute. I want that. Yes, me too. Uh-huh. And number two, I thought, I said I. And then the note says... I must leave you for a time. There are too many people here, and I do not like Caldwin, I'll call it. And I do not like Caldwin. I will await you in Carrion. Never think that I am too far from you. You will be in my thoughts always, as I know that I am in yours. Um, It's unsigned, but obviously from Celine, whatever her real name is, since she couldn't sign it, Celine, since it's not her name, and that might be a lie. And Mm. I looked back to when she was introduced to when she introduced herself originally, and she said, and I quote, I am called Celine, not my name is Celine. And I just mm. think she's cleverly using words, like to not say her identity. But if she's not an Aes Sedai, she would not, or if she were an Aes Sedai, she wouldn't be able to say, I am not an Aes Sedai, because they can't lie. But she said, I am what I am, and I am no Aes Sedai. So, right. like, I am no Aes Sedai. Like, grammatically, 
I don't know. I'm just something is happening. Like yeah. she's being very clever with her speech. I'm just curious. I'm really curious. That's the part that's getting me is when you said that in the other in your chapter. I was like, damn it, that blows my whole theory. But I'm still based on her not just saying I'm not an Aes Sedai, I and by prefacing it by saying I am what I am. Mm-hmm. I just mm, I don't know. Maybe there's something else that she is. Maybe she was an Aes Sedai. Maybe she's been cast out of the White Tower. Maybe, Maybe. she never was accepted. Maybe she was going through the process of becoming one of the accepted, or maybe she was accepted and she did something, and she's no longer technically Aes Sedai, but she's not who she says she is still. <laughs> okay. Okay, um, good. And so, speaking of skeptical, Captain Caldwin is outside with a man named Elrican Tavlin to command his guard and an army of about 50. Um, the men are dressed with gold breastplates and steel gauntlets over their blue coats and short staffs with a blue banner depicting a white star. Elrican's having two white lines crossing it. I always love the descriptions of all these different, like, sigils and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Sigils. (laughs) Sigals. The the soldiers have more, like, traditional armor with bell-shaped helmets. When Aldrin asks where Selene is, Rand says she left in the night. And he's shocked by this, and Huron keeps it real by saying that he must have had them watched in the night, and Mm -hmm. now he can't figure out how Selene slipped out unnoticed. Again, she's not who she says she is. So Rand is annoyed that Selene made them look so bad, but I'd argue that if they were already being watched, um, she did them sort of a favor by disappearing because she was the most suspect of them all, and... If she can't lie, and if she is viewing herself as... If she's nice to die and she can't lie, and she was having trouble getting through a conversation with this guy in the inn, she definitely can't be with his men, because she would be a huge, like, red flag for them. And in the end, what she wants is Rand to deliver this horn and blow this horn, it seems like. So, that's my theory. Rand is annoyed by this, but like I said, I think they were being watched anyway, so she really didn't do anything but a favor to them. And so he and his new escorting army um, head on the way to Carrion, and that is where we end with no Tom, but it's okay, because I feel like it's alluding to Tom somehow. Okay, so there is a slight second meaning to the uh, the harp icon, I believe. Is it just like and... glee, glee men, or like... Oh, interesting. They don't really say it, but... Okay, I had always thought, and maybe I'm incorrect, but I think that it's also periodically used when there is the game of houses stuff going oh, on. Like okay. when there's like political intrigue specific to kind of like carrion kind of stuff happening. Yes, I am very interested in seeing seeing if you're right, seeing if that harp means more about the game of houses. And speaking of <laughs> hanging on and what you're interested to see, I would be interested to see if all of you guys could take a minute to rate us, review us, find us on um, anywhere where you listen to podcasts. We would really, really appreciate it. It would help other people find us. And yeah, if you love us, help other people find us and love us too by... Like I said, rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. But anyway, where were we? So, (laughs) chapter 22 is called Watchers. And the sigil for this uh, chapter is our favorite drag queen, Ruby Dagger. (laughs) Yes. 
And this is a Maureen chapter, surprisingly. So the the sigil is not what you would expect for this chapter. Not um, at all. But um, Maureen is sitting at a table and uh, RJ has this beautiful paragraph where he talks about how it's this long polished table with books and scrolls and manuscripts, some of them dusty, um, in a room full of books and manuscripts with shelves uh, filling, filled with all of these, these books. And, um, and Maureen's at this, you know, table full of all of these, this literature, this, this books. <laughs> Maureen's at the corner of all this literature, this uh, books. <laughs> oh my god, my brain is failing me. The other anyway. dra- the other drag name we uh, have to bring up is <laughs> Dusty Manuscript. Dusty Manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> it's Ruby Dagger's like unfortunate little sister, like yes. Dusty Manuscript. <laughs> yes. She's very bookish. She's the Jeanette of the Chipettes to um like the Britney. I am so impressed that you just pulled Jeanette from the Chipettes out oh, of the back of your mind. Jeanette was my favorite Chipette. Huh. Far better than Brittany and Eleanor. <laughs> I liked Eleanor. She was okay. I mean, she, uh, Brittany was obviously the worst Chipette. Like, duh. But, yeah, I was always a Jeanette girl. Anyway. <laughs> So, uh, what I love about this is that is this like room full of books. It feels very Belle and Beauty and the Beast, or totally. just this like ancient archive library thing that I just I love. So, um, Moraine mutters to herself that nothing is happening as she expects. So, whatever it is that she's trying to find, or whatever her plans are, she's feeling a couple of steps behind in her quest. She's in this village of Tifon's Well, which is deep in Arafel, where no one would expect her to go at the home of two elderly sisters who are also Aes Sedai, um, Adelius and Vandine. And they're two elderly Aes Sedai with white hair who had gone into voluntary retreat so long ago that few even in the White Tower still remember that they live. And even though one is brown and one is green... Um, they are both historians who intend to write the history of the world since the breaking. So Moraine is there because it's the perfect place for her to find the information she needs, except the information isn't there. Of course. She turns to Lan, who is also in the room, and asks him if he remembers the first time that they met, hoping to catch him by surprise because they never really talk about this, uh, this meeting the first time that they met over 20 years ago. And he says he remembers. And Maureen says, still no apology. You threw me into a pond. <laughs> and she's not smiling, but she's kind of amused inside. She's sort of like needling Lan. Mm-hmm. And he says, I recall I built a fire too and hung blankets so you could warm yourself in privacy. I also recall that while I slept that night, you dumped half the pond on me. It would have saved a great deal of shivering on both our parts if you had simply told me you were an Aes Sedai rather than demonstrating it. Not a good way to introduce yourself to a border man trying to separate me from my sword. And she ex- uh, she asks if he ever expected her to um, ask if she could bond him as her warder. And he says he never guessed. He was only trying to make it to Chachin with a whole skin because she had different surprises for him every night, including something to do with ants. Eee, kinky. Yeah. 
<laughs> she's into some weird freaky shit maureen yeah, hey i'm not gonna yuck her yum but no it's not not for me no um and she smiles and asks if his bond is chafing after all these years and he says no that he chose freely knowing what it entailed and asks her why she's talking about these these days past and for the hundredth time or so it seemed to her she considered the words to use and she says to him before we left Tarvalon, I made arrangements, should anything happen to me, for your bond to pass to another. When you feel my death, you will find yourself compelled to seek her out immediately. I do not want you to be surprised by it. And he's clearly pissed about this, uh, because this sort of, like, using the bond to compel somebody is something that uh, Moraine has always said she kind of finds distasteful, that it sort of um, takes away the warder's, like, agency as yeah. a person. And she says, I just don't want you to die in a useless attempt to avenge me or to return to your private war with the Blight, because he has a greater purpose in the war against the Shadow. And so he asks, okay, well, if you're going to do this to me, who are you passing my bond to? And she says, Myrel, which I don't think we've met yet. No, I, I don't recognize the name. Okay, great. Um, if my if Myrel can keep three Gaiden in line, perhaps she has a chance to manage you. Though she would like to keep you, I know she has promised to pass your bond on to another when she finds one who suits you better. And so he says, so I'm not a pet, but a parcel. And Myrel is to be a caretaker. Moraine, not even the Greens, treat their warders so. So he's clearly upset about this. And he asks whose hand he is eventually supposed to end up in. And Moraine says that she's doing this for his own good and for the good of another. Uh, that he has too much to offer to see him in an unmarked grave. And explains to him that in Faldara, when they were all together um, with all the all the kids, that <laughs> she began to wonder if he was still wholly with her and asks him why he did what he did with Rand. She says, you brought him in to see the Amerlin speaking and acting as a border lord and a soldier born. It fit in a way with what I had planned for him, but you and I never spoke of teaching him any of that. Why, Lan? And he explains that it seems that if a wolfhound must meet its first wolf someday and the wolf sees him as a puppy, the wolf will surely kill him. He says that he may have been caught up in the Taveran pull and kind of um, didn't maybe as consciously do that. Maureen dismisses him, and RJ writes that for a time after he left, Maureen leaned back in her chair looking into the fire. She thought of Nynaeve and cracks in the wall. Without trying, without thinking what she was doing, that young woman had put cracks in Lan's walls and seeded the cracks with creepers. Lan thought he was secure, imprisoned in his fortress by fate and his own wishes, but slowly, patiently, the creepers were tearing down the walls to bear the man within. Already he was sharing some of Nynaeve's loyalties. In the beginning, he had been indifferent to the Emmonsfield folk, except as people who, in whom Moraine had some interest. Nynaeve had changed that as she had changed Lan. So... Uh, it's looking like Maureen is starting to kind of question whether she can trust Lan's loyalties anymore because she can sense that he's in love with Nynaeve and that it might impact how he chooses to act with regard to all of the folks from Emmons Field. And she has very clear plans and intentions for at least Rand. And so she's kind of, I think she's kind of concerned about what that could mean for choices that Lan could make. Yeah, I thought this was all really interesting because we've never seen really Maureen and Lan on any sort of like on their different own. pages. Or really, yeah, on their own. And like we've never seen them not necessarily at odds, but 
Um, yeah. Like seeing the imperfections in them and seeing them more as people rather than these like know it, know it all figures. Exactly. Like you're yes. seeing like their relationship behind closed doors when they're not, uh, when they're aware that they're not being watched. And it's like, um, the, the idea of her bonding him to someone else, like that says like a few things to me. Cause it says that she, she has an idea of what this whole prophecy is supposed to happen with this dragon. If Rand is the true dragon reborn. And so she is letting everything happen as the wheel is weaving it. But that means that she's expecting herself to not survive it. Meaning that she's expecting herself to have to be as much of a part of it as possible where she's going to sacrifice herself, it sounds like. And then she's expecting Land to survive it. And I wonder if her bonding him to some to this other Aes Sedai and then bonding him to somebody else is sort of like buying time for Egwene or Nynaeve to become a full-fledged Aes Sedai and then he mm-hmm. would be bonded to one of them. And I'm wondering okay. if she's doing that because she worries that if these little cracks like that quote you put in there are happening, that Lan might betray his um, his oath he took as a warder anyway and then want to get married. And like he can't for whatever reason for the wheel to weave the way it's supposed to. So he's like binding him to somebody else to like yeah. prevent him from doing that or following his heart says I don't know I'm just so like it's just so nothing we've seen before and I'm really into it yeah 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 I I like this um I like again I don't know why I always, always skipped the great hunt so much when I reread because what I love about this is in book one more we don't see much from Moraine's perspective like we just have that very closing mm. like two or three pages yeah and so in book one, she's very much like this Gandalf character from Lord of the Rings where she knows everything or at least knows what what should be do- they should be doing next and she's guarding them and keeping them safe. And then here we start in this book, we're starting to see in her chapter with um, the Amarillan and in this chapter, we're starting to see that she is just a flawed human being who is trying her best with what she has available to her to let the dragon be reborn and, you know, defeat the dark one and all of that. So I I like th- these kinds of chapters a lot because I don't think in, I don't, it's been a long time since I've read Lord of the Rings, but I don't remember a lot of like flaws in Gandalf, but th- that could just be my memory. I never um, read it, but yeah, it's definitely a different vibe than, than yeah. you get from like these like sage characters and other, yes. other fantasy stories. Yeah. So, um, so Maureen is stifling her feelings of jealousy and wondering how long it's going to be before Lan asks to be released of his uh, bond to Maureen so that he can be with Nynaeve. And just then Van Deen comes into the room with some tea and notes that uh, the variety in Maureen's books seem to indicate even Maureen doesn't even know what she's looking for because she's got books on the Trolloc Wars uh, things about the legend of the returned, two treatises on the Horn of Valir, three on dark prophecy, some, a book about the Forsaken, a book about Shadar Logoth, and three translations of the prophecies of the dragon. And so she's kind of like, do you even know what you're looking for? Like, what what are you trying to find? Yeah, she also and... has a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey on the counter. <laughs> <laughs> An Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mavis, Beach, Mavis Beacon teaches typing. She's got the everything yellow pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Moraine asks Van Dien to sit for a moment so that she can ask her, asks her, 
ask her some questions <laughs> and asks if the Horn of Valir is ever linked to the Dragon Reborn. And Vandine says, no, other than the horn must be found before Tarman Gaidon, which is the final battle, and that the dragon is supposed to fight at the, at the last battle. And Maureen asks if anything links the dragon with Toman Head. Um, and Vandine says, yes and no. There is a verse, five ride forth and four return. Above the watchers shall he proclaim himself, bannered across the sky in fire. And she believes that watchers is meant to be watchers over the, over the waves, which is sort of that region of the world in, in Toman Head in Almoth Plain. Mm -hmm. Then Moraine asks about Shadar Logoth and whether Vandine can think of a, uh, why a fade would take something from Shadar Logoth. And Vandine says she can't think of anything. The hate that killed Shadar Logoth was hate that was um, kind of in counterpoint to the Dark One, like another evil, but not aligned with each other. Mm -hmm, yeah. And that it would destroy Shadow Spawn as surely as those who walk in the light. And then Moraine asks, What do you know of Lanfear? And Vandine sort of says, We don't know a lot, but she was linked to the dragon to lose their Intellimon. And asks if she has some clue as to where the dragon will be reborn or was reborn or has he come already. And Moraine says, if I did know, would I be here instead of in the White Tower? The Amulet knows as much as I, that I swear. Have you received a summons from her? And so she, I, that to me is the perfect example of like an Aes Sedai answer that like implies I don't know anything. But all of her statements are true because the Amerlin knows everything because she's in on this whole scheme with Moraine of trying to keep the Dragon Reborn sort of out of the hands of the tower um, yeah. until he's like in a place where he can fight the Dark One. And so this whole scene is sort of like Moraine, all of the subjects that she's reading on are, are kind of the question marks for her that we got in chapter one and in the early chapters of this book with the prophecies that were written on the walls in blood in Faldara. Um, you know, she's trying to figure out whether Rand is connected to the horn or if it just needs to be somebody else at the last battle who blows it. What's going on on Toman Head? Why would Fane, Pad Padon Fane, say, you know, I'll see you on Toman Head? And uh, then also trying to get answers about Shadar Logoth and the dagger, and then info about Lanfear and what it could mean that she in theory, could be free or loose or whatever. Hmm. Landfear again. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. um, ba -ba -ba -ba. So then they kind of wrap up their conversation, and Moraine goes for a walk outside in the moonlight, <laughs> just like the song. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Walking after midnight. <laughs> I uh, Actually, I was thinking of... Um, oh, moon Dancing dance? in the no. Moonlight. No, not dancing in the moonlight. Um, oh, I don't know. That's like three moon, songs. Yeah, moon dance. Can I just moon dance? Have one yeah, moon? yeah, moon dance. Okay, all of those things. Yeah, um, and she's standing lost in thought when she hears kind of like the crunch of sand or gravel behind her, and she looks over and a shadow loomed dimly only a few paces from her, a shadow that appeared to be a too tall man wrapped in his cloak, but the face caught the moon. Gaunt-cheeked, pale, with black eyes too big above a puckered red-lipped mouth, the cloak opened, unfolding into great wings like a bat's, and it begins to croon, uh, which hypnotizes her and draws her toward it. And so this is a drag car, mm. um, obviously. Um, and again, we sh you know, we're kind of reminded that if the drag car uh, starts to kiss you, that it will rob you of your soul and then kill you. 
And so she's hypnotized, walking toward it, thinking like, fuck, I'm dead. And suddenly swords flash and Lan and Jam, who is Van Dean's warder, <laughs> have stabbed and killed the drag car and it screams as it dies. Van Dean and Adelius run out to see what the screaming was and wonder how could the drag car have come so close without them sensing it? Because remember, Aes Sedai and, and warders can sense um, shadow spawn if it gets too close. And Maureen says it was warded. And Adelia says that's impossible. Only a sister could. And then trails off. And Maureen says the Black Aja. Mm. We don't so, speak about those, but mm-hmm. now, but now we said it. But now we said it. Now we said it. <laughs> Um, so Maureen says that she must leave letters with them to be sent to the tower and that she must leave at once. And Van Deen asks, will you find your answers where you're going? And Maureen says, I may have already found one. I did not know I sought. I only hope I am not too late. And that is the end of chapter 22, Watchers. Mm, interesting way to end the chapter. I know. A drag car up close. I thought that was really interesting. It's the one of those, like, you know, three initial creatures that we were introduced to that I really was not able to fully picture. Um, yes. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. It's basically, I picture it sort of like if a vampire was halfway toward transforming into a bat, like a giant bat-winged human vampire type thing. Yeah, I mean, that sounds... With, like, a lamprey mouth that kind of, like, suckers on... Oh, wow. I always pictured there's this, um, and I I can't believe I keep referencing this game and these things, but in the game Secret of Mana, or in the series of Secret Mana games, there's a um, mana spirit named Shade. It's like this sort of like winged uh, little thing. It has one, sometimes it's depicted as like holding a big eye or holding like an orb of some type. I've always pictured something like this as the drag car, like not human looking at all and now it's making me feel like i can sort of understand where we're going with this so i don't know i really thought that was a cool way to end the chapter because i had i had a really hard time picturing this creature in my mind yeah Yeah. um do you remember gargoyles the the tv uh, show cartoon oh yeah yeah yeah. so kind of like that sort of body thing with like big bat wings yeah kind of thing totally how i picture it what was your favorite part of these two chapters okay um Hmm. Oh man, it's it's hard to pick. I actually really liked the moment in the inn when Celine avoids the question when she went the sort of inquisition with Rand and these people because I just liked the introduction of like this whole new sort of like group of people, um, yeah. sort of getting an idea of what Carrion's all about. Like, because I don't really trust Celine's, like that she's just a carrying it carrying in person. Um, <laughs> yeah, like just average so i just liked seeing like a more um in-depth look at these people and what what were we what we would expect if they end up making it there and um yeah i just really liked the tricky ways in which celine was acting in this chapter because it's confirming for me that she is at least not who she says and someone more important and i'm just so curious to find out so yeah yeah what about you um i mean i i talked about how I really love this this part with Maureen and her kind of research. Like, I'm such a nerd. I love I love books. I love knowledge. Like, being in a giant library is so exciting to me just to, like, not that I want to read all the books, but just, like, being in a room and going, like, there is so much knowledge in this space is really 
nerdily exciting to me. And so I just love those moments where somebody's like in an archive looking through these old things for an answer. So I really liked that that part with um, Moraine in Adelius and Van Dien's sort of library in this sort of hidden. And also it's sort of like these two women are, you know, in theory, nobody really knows they're alive. Nobody knows they're Aes Sedai. So all of this knowledge and information that they have might be stuff that nobody else in the world has, right? Because it's sort of like this secluded um, secret place. So I, I just love that feeling of that sort of like searching for hidden knowledge kind of thing. Yeah, it's cool. It's like a totally different um, place than anywhere than where anyone else is. It sort of feels like this like little hideaway that only yes. like Moraine knows about, and not even that many I said I even remember about. It's kind of like this little separate place, and I it's like it's like in movies or TV shows when like you're introduced like these off the side characters and you're like oh my god please let them be safe throughout the rest of the series <laughs> yes remember in avatar um when they go to the library with the big owl yeah yeah that's kind that's kind of uh, just you know substitute vandine and adelius for the giant oh owl. my god and... <laughs> you know what's funny i have a totally different reference point for it is when in tuka and birdie when they go talk to her old um swim coach Yes. And they go to this like off the pl- off the map place and they're at the lake and stuff. That's like what yes. I imagine like these two side elderly women characters sort of like living out their life on their own terms and stuff, you know? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and we do Adelius and Vandine do come back, so good, we will see them good. more. I'm excited. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Um don't forget to review us and all that cool stuff. And please don't forget to interact with us out there on, you know, all of our social media accounts. You can find us on Twitter at CoolStoryPod1, on Instagram at CoolStoryPod, and you can email us at CoolStoryPod at gmail.com. And please email us anything you can think of. We love, 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 love hearing from you guys. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Uh, bye. Bye-bye.